Well, I am honored to announce that we are a church of prodigals. We are prodigals who were lost, and Jesus Christ never gave up on us. And with all of his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness, yet again, he cleansed us, he restored us, and he brought us back into relationship with him. And the fact that we are prodigals is a testimony to why tears fill in our eyes, fill up in our eyes when we worship. It's why we raise our hands unashamedly and worship. It's because we were lost and we were found and we're prodigals who've returned and we've been cleansed by the grace of God. We are a church of prodigals who've returned. Prodigals who've come home. But the worst fate of any church is for those prodigals who've been touched by the grace of God to then become like the older brother. Where we don't really have a heart for prodigals who haven't returned yet. In fact, we are critical of them and we judge them and we're angry toward them. So where's the disconnect in the following? How could it be that never before in church history have churches in the United States of America been larger, been more polished, been more professional? Uh, There's smoke in the worship sets and light shows and lasers and a million dollar sound systems and six figure income uh, eloquent articulate communicators there's tens of thousands of people assembling in just one church and that's not uncommon why is it that churches have never before been bigger and a big church in and of itself is not bad but where's the disconnect Why is it that churches in America have never before been bigger, more refined, more polished, and yet our culture has never before been more hell-bent and hell-bound than it is today? Where is the disconnect? Why is it that Christian inspirational books that are theologically sound have never before been a greater market. Why is it that the Christian music industry has never before had its, had its largest niche as it does today and been as big as it ever has? And there can be uh, worship venues, there can be concert venues that are packed out with worship settings and, and across metroplex areas all across the nation, they flood to the worship venues and buy worship CD after worship CD, and yet our culture has never before been so corrupt, sexually impure, sexually addicted, sarcastic, cynical, godless, faithless, hell-bent, and hell-bound. Where is the disconnect? I believe it's because our churches are full, but our prayer closets are empty. We may pray for our nation, but it's with dry eyes. And a dry-eyed church will never change its culture, which is why we're on this, as Cassidy said, a 21-day fast. And we're challenging you to access your prayer closet literally. Jesus said, what's done in secret in your prayer closet, when you cry your eyes out to him, will be rewarded openly. And the reward that we want is for the gospel of Jesus Christ to sweep through Fairmount, the South Side, Fort Worth, and the world. So we're in a series in Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, open it with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're talking about a people that God uses today. Oh Lord, let it be us. Let us be the people that God used to bring about revival. When we pray for a revival, 
We must pray for a sweeping revival. We must swing for the fence. When we pray for revival, it must be a weeping revival. It must come from the inside out. And we got to cry our eyes out on behalf of the lost people, the hell-bound people, the corrupt culture, the people who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Who is the person that God will use? Who is the church that God will use to bring about this sweeping, weeping revival? Oh, Lord, let it be us. So, um, let me tell you a story about uh, an island in Hawaii. And this particular island, for over 100 years now, has been a leper colony. In fact, up till today, I believe there's six lepers in this leper colony. This is, it's a beautiful, majestic Island with uh, the, surrounded by the Pacific Ocean and and a beautiful mountainscape. Now, on one area of the island, the, the the tip of I believe it's the northern part of the island protrudes, and so on three sides it's surrounded by the Pacific Ocean, but then on the south side it's it's um, divided by a mountainous landscape. So that peninsula is extremely isolated and provided for the perfect leper colony. So initially, when they began, uh, when they began exporting lepers to this particular colony, it was a very primitive uh, setting for these lepers. And really, it was an inhumane environment for them. They would, the lepers would be in the ships, and instead of the, the ships pulling up onto shore, they would tell them oftentimes to jump out and swim. And we're talking about lepers with open wounds and open sores swimming in the salt water to the colony. Well, they decided to make it a little easier for them, so they, they attached ropes. It was kind of like a zip line without the zip, uh, ropes from the island, and they would attach it to the ships, and so lepers would sort of shimmy from the ships into the island. And, but all the while, their, their leprous feet were dangling uh, near the water and into the water like fish bait. And once the lepers were on the colony, uh, they didn't take supplies to them in a, in a systematic, regimented uh, humane manner. Oftentimes the sailors would just throw the cargo overboard and uh, just expect it to wash up shore for the, for the lepers. And the environment on the island itself was pitiful. They didn't have houses. They didn't have structures. Uh, they made makeshift homes out of sticks and mud. Well, there's a missionary from Belgium named Father Damien who heard about this plight. And his heart broke. And so he went to live amongst the lepers, and he would nurse their wounds, he would clean their wounds, he would bandage their wounds. He would organize the leper colony to build houses, to build churches, to build hospitals. And when one of them died, he would himself dig their grave, and he would bury them and preside over their their service. He lived among them, he loved them, he shared the love of Christ with them. And this is in the mid to late 1870s. And he ministered to them for 11 years. And one morning, Father Damien was preparing some boiling water. And he poured it out of a boiling pan into a cup, but it missed the cup, and it spilled onto his foot. And a few moments later, he realized that didn't hurt. So he poured more boiling water onto his foot, and it didn't hurt. 
And it was then that he realized that he contracted leprosy. So that morning at chapel time, he assembled the lepers. And as they assembled before them, he normally uh, addressed them by saying, My fellow Christians, my fellow brothers and sisters. But this time he addressed them by saying, My fellow lepers. I believe it was about uh, just a year or two later that he did pass away, but he was relentless in his work all the way up until the end. And all that to say, when we see everything that's wrong around us, the tendency is to criticize it. The tendency is to complain about it, or the tendency is to cower in fear about it. But some people step up and they make a difference by being near it. And last week we talked about we live where we live. We work where we work. We exercise where we exercise. The family that we have around us is the family that we have around us all not by accident but by the sovereign design of God so that we, like the example of Father Damien who was following in the example of Jesus Christ would get up close to people who are hell-bent and hell-bound and share the love of Christ with them. Are you the kind of person that criticizes, complains, and cowers about everything that's wrong in the culture around you, or are you the kind of person that steps up and makes a difference by getting close to this hell-bent and hell-bound world with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There was a young pastor in the Northeast, and his name was Dave Wilkerson back in the 1970s. And he pastored a, a, a country church. And one day he was watching the news and, and he saw this, this gang that uh, beat this handicapped person. I forget if it was to death or almost to death. I believe that this gang in, in New York City beat a handicapped person to death. And so they were awaiting their, their trial. And he saw them and, and, and he saw a picture of them in Time Magazine, this gang. And he immediately started weeping uncontrollably, beside himself, weeping. And then before you know it, this young pastor is in New York City at the court where the gang is being tried, and he walks up before the judge, and he starts pleading for the life of the gang members. And at that time, uh, cameramen began snapping their cameras, and it made the news, and it became national history. But Dave Wilkerson then moved to New York City, and he began ministering to the gangs. And there was this one particular gang leader of a very violent gang, and the gang leader's name was Nicky Cruz. And Nicky Cruz recalls his, his uh, recollection of Dave Wilkerson by saying he's this really nerdy guy, this really nerdy, lanky country guy who had these thick glasses that looked like Coke bottles, and one eye went that way and one eye went that way. And this guy named Dave Wilkerson was coming up to me and trying to share this Jesus to me. And Nicky Cruz pulled out a switchblade, and he said, if you don't get away from me, I'm going to cut you up into a thousand pieces and to that Dave Wilkerson respond and every piece will cry out Jesus loves you again are you the kind of person that scrolls social media and watches the news and hears about things around you and loses their patience with friends and family members and co-workers and simply complains and criticizes or and cowers in fear or will you be the kind of person who stands up and says oh God let there be a revival but let, let that revival begin with me and then you get up close and personal to the hell bent and the hell broke and the hell bound world and you share the love of Jesus 
with them. Nehemiah was such a person. If you would open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. It's left of Psalms and Proverbs, a handful of books, right of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. Nehemiah chapter 4. This is our third and final week in our series. We haven't even scraped the tip of the iceberg. I am pretty certain we're going to spend the whole summer in 2018 walking through Nehemiah. So be looking forward to that. But we are next week going to enter into a new series that I'm going to share with you in a moment. But Nehemiah chapter 4. If you make a decision, if you make a commitment to get up close and personal to a hell-bent and hell-bound world, then you will have opposition. In fact, the reality that you have opposition is an indication that you're going in the right path. Jesus said, look, I'm the master, you're the teacher. If I was attacked, be certain you're going to be attacked. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but don't worry about it. I've overcome the world. Be encouraged. I've overcome the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that all tells me that if you don't have opposition because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of the stands in which you make, because of the decisions in which you make, because of the faith in which you share, because of where you pray and how you pray, because of the vocality of your convictions. If you don't experience some opposition from Satan, it's probably because you're walking with Satan. You're in stride with him. You're going the same direction. The only way in this world to be certain that you don't have opposition from Satan is to walk in sync with Satan. But the moment you repent and make a U-turn, you're going to have a head-on collision with Satan. Don't fear Jesus is greater. This one little boy asked his daddy, Daddy, is Satan bigger than mommy? And the dad thought about it and said, Well, son, I I suppose he is. And the little boy said, Well, daddy, is Satan bigger than you? And the dad said, Well, I guess he is. And the little boy said, Well, is Satan bigger than Jesus? And the dad said, Oh, no. Now, Jesus is bigger. And the little boy said, well, then it's going to be okay. <laughs> and it's going to be okay if you make a U-turn, repent, and become vocal about your faith in Jesus Christ. You will have a head-on collision with Satan, but Jesus is bigger. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you are going to experience opposition. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, let's look at the opposition that you will experience. It's the opposition Nehemiah experienced. It's the opposition you and I will experience. And then we're going to see how Nehemiah countered that opposition. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat... Sanballat and Tobiah, don't they just sound like bad guys? These are the bad guys. Sanballat heard that we were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged. And I would just dare say, I don't try to tick people off for the sake of ticking people off. I really don't. I'm meek, I'm mild-mannered, I'm compassionate. The Lord has wired me up to be very empathetic. But I believe that if at some point you don't tick somebody off greatly for your faith in Jesus Christ, you're probably not walking with Jesus Christ, and you're probably a a silent Christian, an incognito Christian. Sanballat heard that we were building the wall. They're building the material, the physical walls of Jerusalem, as we've talked about. And it's a metaphor for the spiritual decay that's all around us. And when they build the walls of Jerusalem, that's a metaphor for rebuilding the lives that are all around us, because the ultimate city, even Jerusalem itself, the literal, physical Jerusalem is 
a metaphor for the church. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1. It's a metaphor for the church. And every time somebody comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and follow Christ, it's like we put another brick on the wall and we're building the wall for the glory of Christ and the hope of the world and salvation of souls. And as Cassidy testified earlier, for the restoration of families, families are drawn into reconciliation, teens are put on the right track. People have purpose in their life. People's eternal addresses are rewritten from hell to heaven. Every time somebody comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, we put another brick on the wall. And when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, and every one of us in this room represent a prodigal, some brick that was added to the wall, and don't you know that makes Satan angry? And here's how he responds through people. Satan spoke through a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and Satan today speaks through flesh. He largely speaks through flesh and blood, human beings. And they were enraged, and they, this is the first obstacle that Nehemiah faced in building the walls. And know this, hear this, if you follow Christ, if you're vocal about your faith, if you endeavor to take people by the hand and lead them across the line of faith, If you endeavor to lead people from darkness to light and eternal death to eternal life and separation from God to reconciliation with Christ in a relationship that will alone quench their thirsty hearts, you will face this opposition. And the first opposition is that they were ridiculed. They were angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, And of all the armies of Samaria, this is the Arab world surrounding Jerusalem. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish rubbish, and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the other bad guy, the Ammonite, was beside him. And they're laughing out loud at Nehemiah's leadership, one of the greatest leaders of all time. They're laughing out loud at his leadership. They're laughing out loud at the endeavor of the Jews to build up the walls. And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If if a fox goes up it, he'll break it. Their stone wall is going to collapse. They were ridiculing them. They were derating them. They were discouraging them. And any time you endeavor to put a brick on the wall of the church, not the church called a human building, but the church, the body of Christ, souls that are saved, any time you endeavor to put a stone, and Peter, he refers to Christians as living stones, any time you endeavor to put a stone on the body of Christ, you will face ridicule, you'll face jeering. At school, you will face jeering. I remember my first semester in college. I was at UTA, and I was, a, I was in a political science class. And uh, Alan Sachs was the political science uh, professor. And he was ridiculing Christianity. And it was a class of, I don't know, probably 300 people. He was ridiculing Christians. He was ridiculing G- Christianity. He was talking about how Jesus was nothing more than a fairy tale. And the whole time he was talking, 
I was feeling more anxious and more uneasy, and I felt a greater sense of responsibility to speak up for Christ amongst these 300 college students. And before you know it, I was on my feet, and I was saying something about Christ. And then Alan Sachs, who's a very witty guy, responded with something, and everybody laughed. But after class, somebody said, thank you for saying something. I I, I didn't know what to say, but thank you for saying something. And all of that to say... We have to speak up for our faith in Christ. We have to speak up for the validity of how our hearts are transformed, as Luke testified. And a person with a testimony, a person with a story, is never at the mercy with a person with an argument. We have to speak up for Christ. And we have to endeavor to lead people to faith in Christ and know that in that endeavor, you will be ridiculed. But there will be a voice in heaven saying, well done. My good and faithful servant, I am so proud of you. They ridiculed Jesus when he went into the room where the little girl had died. He said, oh, she's only sleeping. And they jeered at our Lord and Savior, the King of glory. And if they ridiculed him, they're going to ridicule us. When Jesus was on the cross, they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They jeered him. They should have been on their faces worshiping him. But they ridiculed him. And they said, you saved others. Can't you even save yourself? Come down from there. Save yourself if you're the Messiah. If they ridiculed him, they're going to ridicule us. And if you shrink back for the sake of ridicule, then you're not following Christ. You're not a light in the darkness. Stand up for Christ. Speak up for Christ. When people are talking about Christians and people are talking about Jesus being a fairy tale, step up. Speak up for Christ. Tell them what he's done in your life. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the word of our testimony. There is no defense against the word of our testimony when we simply say what Jesus has done in our life. I received a text message early uh, in the morning one day this past week. This atheist friend of mine that I've been ministering to for some time, years, many years, over 15, 20 years probably, he, uh, he texted me something uh, some, uh, in relation to some political events, and he lumped all Christians in a category of uh, a political group. And he said, you Christians say you want Christ back into Christmas. I would just like to see a little more Christ back in Christians. You, and then he lumped all Christians in this political group. And I responded. I said, you know, we have a lot of the same mutual friends. I'm sorry that you have such a low view of your Christian friends who love you and care for you. And he said, no, they're just like this whole political group lumped in being synonymous with Christianity. He said, I just want to see a little more Christ in Christians. I see more Christ in my Hindu friends than I do in my Christian friends. And then I went on to tell him about my testimony and how I know that I know that I know Jesus is real and he is more real to me than the back of my hands. And he said, when you pray, it's your only voice that you hear. I said, oh, no, I've heard the voice of God. We went back and forth like this in text messages all day long, and his text messages became more angry. I think somewhere along the line, I said something to the effect of, you know what? Either I'm crazy because I've heard the voice of God, or you're blind. And I guess we'll both find out in less than five decades. 
I said, but you don't have to stay blind. You can turn to Christ. The conversation went back and forth like that. And all of that to say, we're starting a series next week. And sometimes when I start a series, I'm a, I just kind of you know, hope we're on the right track. And, or we're just cranking through in obedience, starting another book of the Bible. Sometimes I have, an especial, I, I, I have a special conviction that it's a season. It's a, it's, it's a word in due season. And such is the time with the series that we're starting next week. It's a Christmas series. But it's called Myth or Messiah. And in this This series is going to be specially made for this atheist friend of mine. And it's especially made for the atheist and agnostic and searching friends of yours. And through this series, I believe that two things are going to happen. One is that you will be greatly discipled so that you can give somebody a reason for the hope that you have. You are going to be discipled so that you can say why you believe that the Bible, though it's an ancient document written by over 40 different authors and over a 1,400 year span and three different continents and three different languages, is indeed the word of God and it can be trusted with your life and your soul. You're going to be able to give a defense and that why you believe that Jesus was not a fairy tale, but he was indeed the Messiah and the empty grave is historically reliable and it takes more faith to believe that he didn't raise from the grave than he did because of the overwhelming evidence in that direction. You'll be able to give a defense as to why Jesus Christ is indeed the risen Lord and Savior, even though there's people in the uttermost parts of the world who were born into godless religions and are hellbound. And what makes us so right? Etc., etc., etc. And I want to encourage you to be here because, one, you're going to be equipped and you're going to be discipled. It's called an apologetics series. But I also want to encourage you to challenge your friends who are atheists and skeptics and agnostics to be here. And I'm not going to cut off their, as a communicator, I'm not going to cut off their noses and ask them to smell the rose. In other words, I'm not going to insult them or to be insensitive, but I'm going to provide overwhelming, indisputable evidence that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God who removes the sins of the world. And so, I want to challenge you to grow in this arena of apologetics. And be able to give a defense for the reason why you believe what you believe. But not only that, encourage your friends who are skeptics, agnostics, atheists, or just good followers of Jesus Christ who are struggling in their own personal doubt storm right now. So, Nehemiah was jeered, and he was ridiculed, and he responded with prayer. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. He prayed. Throughout the entire book of Nehemiah, this is a recurring theme in Nehemiah's pattern. He prays, he prays, he prays. If he doesn't know which way to go, he prays. If he's facing obstacles, He prays. If there's division in the camp, he prays. If there's discouragement, he prays. If everybody's weary, he prays. If somebody says something to him before he responds, he quickly prays, and then he responds over and over and over. Verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Followers of Jesus Christ who have an active prayer life are thermostats. Christians 
who have an anemic prayer life are thermometers. That is a fact of our spiritual lives. If you have an active prayer life, if you have a time every day that you set aside to seek the face of God, whether it's a chair in your house by a window, or whether it's a literal prayer closet, or whether it's early in the morning in the office before anyone arrives, but it's a time where you seek the face of God and you cry your eyes out, then you are not a thermometer, you're a thermostat. What does a thermostat do? You set a thermostat on 60, the room becomes 60. You set it on 80, the room becomes 80. A thermostat indicates, it sets the temperature. A Christian with an active, vibrant prayer life is a thermostat. A Christian without an active, vibrant prayer life is a thermometer. What does the thermometer do? It just reflects the existing climate. Your spiritual life is in direct proportion to your prayer life. You tell me about your prayer life, I will tell you about your spiritual life. You tell me about your prayer life, I will tell you about how much joy you have in your heart. You tell me about your prayer life, I will tell you about whether or not you're resisting the, tape, the, the, the temptations that come against you. You tell me about your prayer life, I will tell you whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The prayer life is the thermostat for not only your own life, but also the culture around you. So they were ridiculed, and Nehemiah responded with prayer. And then they were discouraged. They were saying, you can't build that wall. What do you think you're going to do if a fox climbs up on that wall? It's going to collapse. They first started ridiculing them, and then they started discouraging them. And they're saying, you can't do that. It can never be done. How did they respond to that? They stepped up their game. That's how they responded. Verse 6. So we built the wall. <laughs> they, they jeered us. They told us it can't be done. He prayed. And then verse 6, and then we decided to build the wall. And all the wall was joined together, half its height, for the people had a mind to work. This is what we have to do. In this culture, we're going to be ridiculed, so we pray. And in this culture, we're going to be discouraged. People are going to say that what you're doing is absolutely meaningless. What you're doing is just temporal. What you're doing is just make-believe. So what do we do? We step up our game, and we work harder, and we build the wall more. We put more stones on top of the wall. We lead more people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I remember in a particularly difficult season of our church's history, uh, there were some people who were determined to make sure that our doors closed. And so they had a very... Uh, well-executed, systematic strategy to pull people away through deceits and lies. One of the lies was that Shane Gray has lost his mind. He's a heretic and a false prophet. And this lie began circulating. And so they, 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 they started ridiculing people who were going to our church and shaming them who were going to our church and having secret meetings and pulling people away. So we prayed. I started a Sunday night prayer meeting just so people could come and pray for me <laughs> because I was discouraged. And we started going through the book of Romans and saying, this is the gospel, who's in? And we started putting one brick on top of the other. And that summer, we all went to the lake for a fellowship and 23 people followed Jesus in baptism. Reggie was baptized that day, in fact. And we just stepped up our game, and we worked. 
we have to step up our game. We have to work. And we can't be discouraged if people aren't for us. We can't be discouraged if people are against us. Just the opposite. Let that motivate you because Satan doesn't kick a dead horse. But as soon as he's intimidated, he begins attacking. So we step up our game. <laughs> the one, uh, a few chief instigators of, of the slander about me being a false prophet saw Brad and Rachel Wright at a restaurant out in public. Brad and Rachel were some of our founding members, and then they went off for a couple of years, and they saw them uh, at a restaurant, and they walked up to them, and they said, did you hear about Shane? They're like, no, what happened to Shane? But he went off the deep end. He lost his mind. He's a false prophet. He's a heretic. They're like, oh, well, that's terrible. And so they went home and began listening to sermons for like the past year, and they're like, we need to go help him build up that church. Whatever Satan means for evil, God will mean for good. There was another couple that moved off to Dallas, and they told their pastor, hey, we love you, we love this church in Dallas, but we're going to continue to tie to HopeWorks in Fort Worth. And the pastor said, okay, that's fine. They were at a New Year's Eve party, and some of the instigators put, cornered them, and they said, did you hear what happened to Shane? They're like, what? He's a false prophet, he's a heretic, all these other things. And they're like, what? No, I didn't hear that. So this guy asked to have lunch with me. I met him in Dallas, or dinner. I met him in Dallas to have dinner, and he said, you know... We've been giving to HopeWorks a year after we left, and we were about to start giving to our home church, but after they cornered us and said all this stuff to us, we realized, you guys still need our support, so we're going to continue tithing to you indefinitely. All that to say, don't be afraid of people. If there's opposition, let that encourage you that you're on the right track. Just simply pray harder, step up your game, reach out to people more, and whatever Satan means for evil, God will turn into good. And then in verse 7, not only did they ridicule them, and not only did they discourage them, but they threatened them with violence, and they threatened them with danger. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah, the bad guys, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. What happened to their laughs? They're gone. They can laugh at you all day long. But if you pray harder and you step up your game and you reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, their laughter will turn to anger. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And verse 9, we prayed. We pray, we pray, we pray. This is never like you got prayer out of the way, then you go to the next step. We are praying the whole way through. And they continued to pray. And so not only did they reach up in prayer, but as they were facing danger, they reached in to encourage one another. Nehemiah chapter 3, I almost just read it verbatim. You'll probably never hear a sermon on it. I almost just, it's so rich, I almost read it verbatim. Because it's all about how different communities in these, uh, in these Jews were working together. This family group was working here. This family group was working here. This family group was working here. And they had each other's back and they were covering each other. And while one group slept, the other group worked and watched over them. Then the other group would sleep and the other group would walk over, would, 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 would work. And in one hand they had a sword and in the other hand they would put bricks on. And in these family groups, they were encouraging and they were supporting and they were working together. And they never would have overcome the threatening opposition if they weren't working as a family together. And this speaks to the reality that we have to reach up and we got to step up our game. We reach up in prayer. We step up our game and reach out to people. But not only that, we have to reach into one another in this thing called community. 
When I was in Israel, we, it was a beautiful trip. Uh, we hiked for 100 miles, and it was in the desert. And my first day there, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know if I had food poisoning or if I was dehydrated or a mixture of both. But the whole day of finally being in Israel and hiking through these sites, I'm like throwing up the whole time. It was miserable. And I wasn't going to stay in the hotel. I, I, I wanted to see everything. I didn't want to miss everything. So I was in the desert. Just the group was up there in the teaching time. And I was back on a knee just throwing up. And that's how the first 24 hours went. But out of all of my experiences of Israel, and I underestimated how incredible it would be. But out of all my experiences in Israel, the most special time for me was that 24-hour segment that I was throwing up. Because I was in the desert like this, hoping to throw up so I could feel better. And then I felt a shadow come over me. And I looked up, and it was this, this ex-marine uh, standing in between me and the sun, giving me shade. And that meant so much to me. I just wanted to weep. And then somebody else came up behind me and they took their bandana off and they put water in it and they refrigerated the water so it was cold and they put that on the back of my neck. And I experienced all this extra encouragement from others and extra kindness and extra compassion for others. And people who stayed behind me and and sheltered me and guarded me and kept me cool and comforted me and coached me. And there in the wilderness, that to me was a display of what the church should be how we should be like that to one another. And I thought, oh gosh, can you imagine walking through the desert like that by yourself? And that's how some people walk through life. That's how some Christians walk through life. They walk through life without being in community. The reason that Nehemiah's uh, bunch was able to withstand so much opposition and so much intimidation was because they did it together. They did it as a community. You know, the tallest trees, I believe in the world, grow 350 feet tall. And they're as old as 2,500 years, and it's in California. And you would think that these redwood trees grow so tall and live so long because their roots go so deep, but that's not actually the case. They grow in clusters, and it's not that the roots grow deep, it's that the roots intertwine. And when the wind blows and the trees sway, it strengthens these roots that are intertwined, and they hold each other up. This is what... The body of Christ is to do. We are to intertwine our roots. We are to commit our lives to one another. We are to hold one another up. This plays out in community. Community is a place that you can know others and what's going on in their lives, and you can be known. You can love others, and you can be loved. You can serve others, and you can be served. You can encourage others, and you can be encouraged. And some people say, well, I don't need community. I'm just fine with my relationship with Jesus Christ. One, that's a lie. That's not true. You need to be connected. Because the further you stray, the more vulnerable you become to go your own way and to live independently of Christ and stop following Christ. One, that's just not true. But two, even if it were true, that would be selfish. Because you would be like the spiritual Superman. And everybody would really need the gifts and the encouragement that you could give to them. We are called to be redwood trees. Our roots are to intertwine. We are to encourage each other, to lift each other up, to build each other. This happens in community. It happens in small groups, in home groups. And we're going to be starting a new series in our home groups in the early year. 
And in fact, how many of you were given a worship guide, a bulletin when you came in? Would you guys hold that up for me, please? Okay. Inside the bulletin, there are some connect cards. And in that, on that connect card, it says, I'm interested in. And I would like for you to connect, to check, I'm interested in home groups. And I want to make sure that everybody's connected in a cluster of redwood trees. And some of you guys I know are going to be amazing home group leaders. And I've already talked to a couple of new home group leaders that, that, that are going to step up to the plate and lead and to serve. Don't do life alone. Don't, don't be like one of these followers of Jesus Christ in the desert who just does life alone. Henry Green, how are you? Come on up here. You guys, give it up for Henry Green with me if you would. So Henry's a good friend of ours, and he's part of our church family, and he's been on the streets for a while. And, and I'm, we haven't mentioned this, but you know, just behind the scenes, our leadership's been involved in this and getting Henry's ID and Social Security and check from the government underway and in place. And now Henry, thanks to you guys, has a, has a roof over his head. And, um, but you know what? This is, this is community, right? And yeah, let's praise God. But so Henry's got a song that, uh, about walking alone. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not to walk alone. We are to do life together. And listen, if you're not functioning in community, you're not an obedient Christian. It takes vulnerability to live life in community. And like Nehemiah, Nehemiah had to restructure, he had to reorganize in order for people to function and work in community. And you might have to restructure and reorganize your life to function in community. But don't live outside of community. We're called to be redwood trees.